morning, everyone. Our scripture reading today is Mark 8, uh, 22 through 26. Jesus heals the blind men in Bethsaida. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly and he sent him, him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This is the word of God. Well, I think we've mentioned this before. It's been a little while in Mark, but um, use this as an illustration. But uh, something Mark has, has come back to again and again and again, and I think this passage um, is an example of it, and we'll explain why here in a minute, is the idea of an acquired taste. I don't know, like, it's so frustrating having small children that, well, I guess you could say full stop. Um, <laughs> love my kids. Guys, if you're watching, I love you so much. Nonetheless, when you do this, um, like, you know, kids are developing in all sorts of ways, and one of the things that's really difficult at this stage, where our kids are three and five, for our, our particular kids at this particular stage, just food is kind of a weird thing. And, you know, they've just got that, like, toddler palate. Um, for what they'll tolerate, what they'll be able to eat and stuff. And so it's pretty limited. It's basically like butter on things and cheese and that's it. <laughs> that's it. You're two basic food groups. Um, but, you know, you're, you're, like, you're trying things and you know, they eat more than that, of course, and they like other things and they are growing and developing. But you know, you try something like, oh, buddy, you would love this. Like, this thing is so good. You've got to try this. Like, no, I'm not going to try it. And then you're like, oh, come on. And eventually, maybe they'll try the new thing. And then they try it. And, they, and you're like, yeah, so what did you think? I don't like it. <laughs> Turn the nose up. But it's just like, even things like, I don't know, ham. Like, kids should be able to enjoy ham, I think. Uh, and they will one day. Lane will now eat ham. Ezra won't really eat ham, but it's like one day he's going to develop a taste for it. You, you know, eventually we all, and I have my quirks, I have a kind of reputation in my family for being the one that like was always really picky about food and stuff. But eventually, like now I'm eating sushi and stuff, you know? It, people come around. We develop a taste for things. Something that hits you the first time you try it, or the second time, or the third time, it might leave sour taste in your mouth, but you tr eventually, for many things, something clicks. Something clicks, and you're able to appreciate what's there so many times. I've probably used this example, maybe not, maybe not in the last year or two, but certainly at some point as a sermon illustration. There were, like, the whole rock music world went through this collectively. If, if, many of you are probably familiar with the band Radiohead, um, but they put out this album, 1997, I think, called OK Computer, which was, like, the most amazing kind of, like, forward-thinking uh, at least in terms of stuff that could have like crossover appeal into the mainstream example of guitar rock ever. And so they conquered the world with like this kind of weird, moody, quasi-experimental, electronic-infused guitar music. 
And then for their next album, Expectations, were sky high, and they came out with this thing called Kid A. Uh, anyone Kid A fans? Oh, a lot of you, good. Kid A was this, like, it's mostly keyboard-driven, some of it's very atonal, it's very somber, it's, it did not sound like a guitar rock thing at all. And in many ways, the lineage of the band was, like, disappearing. It's, I thought, I thought they played guitars and stuff, what's happening here? And as I, rec I mean, I was a kid when that record came out, so I, I'm hearing all this, you know, secondhand about the reception, but apparently it was incredibly divisive. So many people hated that album when it came out. Like, this doesn't make any sense. I hate it. I don't want anything to do with this. Lo and behold, give it a year, give it two years, give it five years. Now, however long it's been, since 20 years or so since it's come out, uh, it's regarded as like a masterpiece of rock music uh, and electronic music. It's just this, and I agree, it's this beautiful, complex thing. But the first time I heard it as a young Radiohead fan, I was kind of working through their albums in order, and I remember being like, what in the world is this thing? I didn't get it at all. But you come back to it again, you come back to it again. There's something in there that just keeps you coming back years later. That's one of my all-time favorite records. It's amazing, I pushed through. And you don't have to care about that album one way or the other, you don't have to like it, whatever. But it, the point remains, whether it's with food, whether it's music, whether it's great art, whatever, it is very often the case that truly good things don't reveal themselves to us on first blush. You have to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And this particular story, I think, just these five little verses right here that are already very, very similar, we're going to talk about it to a passage we read two weeks ago, it does this to us. And, and not only does this do it, but it, it sets kind of a pattern and trajectory for us to, to think about that dynamic at play in our Christian lives in general. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that Jesus can help us make sense of this. Uh, just ask him to help us, and then we're going we're to talk about it. Father, we are here. We are here to worship you. We're here to do it together, Lord, in community. And we're here to open up your word and hear a fresh word from you. Um, it really doesn't matter what I say, Father, or how insightful it is, or interesting, or funny, or boring, or this or that, Lord. What, what matters is that you speak through your word this morning, and that we could come to you with ears ready to hear and eyes ready to see, Lord. We could come to you with a humble posture, open-handed, just to receive. So mold our hearts that direction, Lord. Speak through me. Speak through this text. Meet us here in this place. Give us a fresh glimpse of you, Lord, because without that, this is play acting, Lord. And that's not what we want. We want a real encounter with you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a short, simple story that has a beautiful surface meaning that Again, we've said this a couple weeks now, it repeats many of the themes we've been talking about over the past several weeks or even months in Mark. But I, I think there are three distinct layers to this passage that, that, that Mark's artistic craftsmanship of this passage is, is drawing us to see if we have the eyes to see it. And I want to be very clear, this isn't to say that anytime you read a biblical passage that there's always like multiple distinct layers or secret meanings every time we open it up. Honestly, sometimes, a lot of times, Christians, we trip ourselves up because we're looking for some kind of like hidden or more spiritual meaning that's under there because we just can't appreciate 
the profundity and simple beauty of what's plainly there. There is depth there in the simple that we refuse to see or acknowledge. So there's not always some kind of secret thing going on. But nonetheless, Mark is using, I think, in this passage, and hopefully you agree with me by the time we're done, all of his artistic skill to, to get us to, to, to see these multiple layers here. And I, I, I want to say also that, like, when you think about that, some of you may hear that and go, okay, that's kind of weird. Like, when we start talking about the artistic intent of the biblical authors, you can start to get a little like, uh, I don't know. I thought this stuff was history. Um, and it is. I think we do well to reflect on a couple of different things. First is the historical events themselves. Much of the Bible is giving us history. The Gospel of Mark is giving us historical biographies of Jesus. It's reporting actual events that happened in our actual world. And so what you have in these events is the author of history, God himself, working in human space-time on the planet Earth around the year 30 AD, doing this. Like, like Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, working and moving and acting, and it, all of it has this deep, rich significance. And then, there's the written accounts of those events. And we've talked about this the very first week that we opened up Mark, but these are well-sourced, eyewitness-informed. We said that uh, Mark, the author of this gospel, is probably getting most of his information from Peter's first-hand account. So you could almost think of the gospel of Mark as the gospel of Peter. Like Peter, who was Jesus' closest disciple there from the very beginning, telling Mark these stories. Much of it was sourced that way. So these are well-sourced stories. Um, but they're also spirit-breathed. The Bible claims that every one of its books was breathed out by God. The Spirit of God himself came alongside, swept up the biblical authors. Didn't overwrite their personalities or the way that they wrote or whatever, but worked alongside to ensure that every word was as God intended it to be. And then on top of that, these things are artistically rendered. So the biblical authors, they're using uh, all kinds of different techniques to, to, to do things to us through these texts. They're not trying to give us just a plain, flat, detached reading. They're trying to move us and do things, and they're using every tool in their tool belt to do it. So the result is, I, would, I hope you believe, I believe, these are true, faithful, and at the same time, well, no, it's not a contradiction. They're true. They are faithful to the history, but they're theological interpretations of those events. Jesus healed this guy. And the way the Spirit and Mark worked together to put together these five sentences to recount what happened is meant to actually provide the significance and the theological meaning of what happened. Make sense? That might be just so basic it's boring, but I think it's good for us to reflect on. So... We're going to take this passage in three passes. We're going to read it three, literally. We're going to read it once, talk about it from a certain angle, read it again, talk about it from a certain angle, read it again, talk about, talk about it from a certain angle um, to see, I think, what I think is a legitimate different layer of meaning each time. And we're going to do it pretty quickly. I have, usually I have like six pages of notes. Read it. That's three. <laughs> I think we can be brief, I hope. Reading number one. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So this story, we already said it, it closely mirrors the story of Jesus healing the man with the hearing and speech issues that we looked at two weeks ago. And you see all those parallels? Friends bring the man to Jesus, just like in that other story. And they plead with Jesus to heal. Again, Jesus compassionately takes this man aside to privacy to heal him. Exact same dynamic here. Again, Jesus uses his own spit, even, as part of the healing process, just as he did with the other man. Finally, the man is fully healed. And then, again, Jesus commands secrecy in a form after the healing. In this case, it's like, don't even go to the village. Don't even go to the village. Avoid the people. The lesson here is exactly the same. That's why we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it. The lesson is this, do you want to know what God's heart is for the people like the disabled, the downtrodden, and the outcast? Are you curious about that? If God exists, what's he like towards these people? His heart is loving and compassionate and merciful. That was the lesson two weeks ago, that's the lesson right now. The God of the universe, this passage declares, is good. When he's incarnated into human flesh and he's standing before a blind man, his impulse is to care. He's not indifferent. He's not cruel. He's not over-concerned with other things, preoccupied. He's not vindictive. He is good, and he himself is the source of all goodness. That's what we see here. And, we said this, say it again, crucially, He's not just, it's not just feelings he has that he wishes he could do something about. He's actually powerful enough to do something about it. That's what the Bible claims. He can heal the most extreme condition with a simple touch. And as, as we pointed out two weeks ago, if all this is happening in Israel around the year 30 AD-ish, all this is happening then the age of the Messiah has dawned, as Isaiah 35, 5 said. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This tells us he's good, he's powerful, and not just arbitrarily, but because he is the Messiah come to put things right, come to fulfill all the prophecies. The long-promised king has come, and this is good news. Because he's like that. Reading one, don't miss it. Don't dismiss, don't say, oh, well, yeah, that's the kind of the surface meaning. That is glorious truth for us that should prompt us to worship this God. Let's read it again. Reading two, reading two. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. 
And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So read it again. And this time, let's remember the context. Context immediately. Very la- the last verses we read before this passage, we read them last week, said this. Jesus, aware of them, grum- remember they're in the boat, they're grumbling about how they don't have any bread when Jesus is trying to impart a spiritual lesson to them. And Jesus flips out. Remember, remember this last week? He's like, this tirade of questions. Do y'all not get it? What does he ask? He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? That was the blast story. We even back out further to after Jesus has this confrontation with the Pharisees and and they're asking Jesus some questions about it. Jesus said to them, Mark 7, verse 18, he says, then also are you without understanding? Or if we just think about the whole book of Mark, we're on the, this is almost the halfway point of the gospel according to Mark. This whole pattern has been there of the disciples leaving everything to follow Jesus, but constantly misunderstanding his teachings. They're following him, but they're showing no faith when difficulty strikes. They're seeing incredible miracles. Whoa, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread, but they forget it the very next time the exact same situation arises. As we read it again, we see some other details too, not just, we're reminded of that context, but then we see they came to the town of Bethsaida. What's so important about that? Probably don't remember. I didn't remember until I was studying for this. Bethsaida is the hometown of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip. And it is either the hometown or very likely near the hometown also of James and John. That's five of them. This is the disciples, hometown, you could say, in short. Not all of them, but good portion, including perhaps the inner three, the closest inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, perhaps all from Bethsaida, or at least very nearby. That's interesting. And then number two, we didn't talk about this the first time through, but what is up with this two-part healing thing? Jesus, it's like Jesus tries to heal him one time, and it's like it kind of takes and then he has to do it again. What is going on there? What happens, Jesus, he heals the man in two stages. After the first touch, the man has partial healing. He can see better than before, but it, he says, I, I, can't, I can't quite make out if I'm seeing people or trees walking around. It's like the picture is just like his eyes are still kind of blurry. It's better, he's, he's seeing something, but he can't, he can't even tell a person from a tree, basically. And then Jesus touches the man again, he can see clearly. Hopefully, if you know, if we know anything about Jesus up to this point, point in Mark, it's, it's, it cannot be uh, that, that, that Jesus doesn't have the power to just heal this man on the first try if he wants to. We've seen Jesus raise someone from the dead with a touch so far. This isn't a problem with Jesus' power. It's not like, oh, the magic's out. You know, he has to kind of like tap it. Is this thing working? It's not what this is. Commentator Morna Hooker, she she suggested that this is what what she calls an acted parable. A lot of commentators saw it this way. I think they're right. It's a symbolically loaded act of Jesus that demonstrates um, 
someone spiritually speaking who has begun to see but is still partially blind. The ancient commentator Jerome put it this way. I love this. He says, he says, watch this very carefully. Note exactly what is said. In the home village of the apostles, there's a blind man. In the very place where the apostles were born, there is blindness. You see it? You see it? In the very place where the apostles were born, there's blindness. Jesus' activity, I think here, both in history, Jesus did this act, and now Mark is retelling it in a way to emphasize this detail for us. It's become a commentary on the disciples' faith. That revelation has been a process for them. It's, it's as if that first encounter with Jesus, Jesus says, leave your nets, come and follow me. They're like, okay, I, this guy is worth following. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to do this. I will lay down so much of my life to follow this Jesus. They see. But do they see? <laughs> do they see? Again and again, they're like messing this thing up. And just the very next week, we enter the fulcrum point of the whole book of Mark, and Peter gets called Satan. <laughs> next week, Peter gets called Satan. He calls him the Christ, but then because he doesn't understand something crucial about Jesus' message, Jesus calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. They see, but do they see? See, so what we have here, I, th I really do think this is an elegant way both to happen in history and now in the shaping of the story to say, look, this is kind of what happens with people spiritually. You get your sight, but you still need your sight. You get vision, but do you really see? And that goes all the way back to, to what Mark, Mark had recorded when Jesus was teaching about the parables. Um, yeah, this whole idea. That there's, there's a kind of sight, there's a kind of partial sight, there's a kind of sight that has to be given. There's a development. Even the way Jesus taught was meant to, to, to let you catch something of it, but you had to wrestle and chew and keep coming back to Jesus to get the fullness of the thing. So, we've got a simple miracle about Jesus compassionately healing this man, proving he's the Messiah, yes. But we've also got this like kind of meta commentary, an acted parable about what is going on in the hearts and minds and spiritual understanding of the disciples. You see it? One more time. One more time. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, as with so much commentary on the 12 disciples in the gospel, I think our last layer here is that Mark intended for this passage to function as a mirror for later disciples who read these stories. So much of the way Mark presents discipleship to Jesus in his gospel is written for, you know, a couple of generations, not generations, a couple of decades 
after these events had happened, Mark is putting this gospel together. He's, he's, he's delivering it to the early church that's having to like wrestle through, what did all that mean? What was going on here? And we've been following Jesus, maybe some of us for 10, 20 years, maybe some of us were there. We started following Jesus when he was still alive before he, was, he, was, uh, before he died, was raised, was, was ascended. Um, and Mark is, is using the story of the disciples to sort of get his early readers to reflect on their own lives. He's trying to, as we said last week, to unsettle the assumptions of the early Christians and now us. We're 2,000 years later, we have the same silly impulses. We miss Jesus in the same ways. The very first week of our study in Mark, we said this, or we quoted this from commentator Tim Gombas. He said, a unique feature of Mark is the very negative portrayal of the disciples. The disciples almost never do the things that Jesus says disciples should do, whereas many outsider characters do things that disciples are supposed to do. The disciples are called disciples, but they don't act like they are. And other characters are not called disciples, but they act as if they are. And this raises all sorts of questions, and that's the point. Mark's narrative is designed to unsettle Christian audiences. It's designed to unsettle Christian audiences, challenging them to examine how and why they are not doing what Jesus taught. That they have become complacent. So, I think we're not supposed to read this and leave it at, yes, Jesus is compassionate, though we must get that. Nor are we to leave it at at understanding the disciples, the 12 disciples' spiritual condition up to this point in the story, though we are supposed to see that. You've got to see yourself in here, too. And I've got to see myself in here, too. We are to let the weight of this turn around onto us, rest on our backs, and let it interrogate us. We have to ask the question, what is the state of my own spiritual sight? Because if the 12 disciples can be declared blind after walking with Jesus, perhaps for a couple of years up to this point, we need to ask that of ourselves as well. There are different types. When we talk about spiritual blindness, for us today, 2020, you can think about it a number of different ways. Um, There are different types. Some are willful. There's willful spiritual blindness where you're you're, you're actively looking at Jesus saying, no, I don't want that. I'm turning away. I want something else. I don't think this is the way. I don't think this is the truth. I don't think he's the life. I want something else. But some are accidental, unconscious, non-willful. Some forms of spiritual blindness are motivated by anxiety or fear of what we might discover. I don't want to look into that issue too closely because it might unsettle me or I might become uncomfortable with what I'm responsible for when I settle on that information. Some forms of spiritual blindness might be motivated by insecurity. Some might be motivated by just a simple, simple busyness. Lack of energy to pursue spiritual understanding. I'm just so wiped out, I don't have time to wrestle with Jesus through these things. I just can't do it right now. Some forms of spiritual blindness might be motivated by pride that you've arrived and you've got nothing else to learn. Blind spots developed there. I thought of just a quick, this wasn't, I didn't find this in a book or anything, I was just kind of thinking off the top of my head a few forms that this might take and I'm sure there's more we could say. Um, But I thought of this, one form of spiritual blindness we should interrogate ourselves about is just ignorance. And I think that's the default mode of most people. Though God has revealed himself plainly in nature, though he's at work all around us, 
uh, we just miss him. We don't see him. We don't see him. We're ignorant of what he's up to. Maybe there's passages in his, in his word that we just haven't, we've never read. We haven't come across it. We don't know. We've never heard it. Pastor never talked about that. My community group leader never brought that up. We're just ignorant. Another one is misunderstanding. And I want to be very clear. This is just good faith error. We're trying to understand Jesus. We're trying to understand God. We're trying to walk in step with his spirit. We're trying to come to understanding of the truth. But we just, we just make a mistake. We're trying and we have errors. We all do this. And hopefully, whenever you become aware of a misunderstanding or an error, a way that you've misunderstood Jesus, you're quick to repent and shift, shift your view or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, I think we can all have a high degree of confidence that we've got it wrong somewhere. <laughs> I find that regularly. Number three, there's suppression. You're avoiding, you're pressing down God's revelation, maybe out of fear. Again, maybe it's, you, don't, you don't quite want to lift up that rock to see what's under there. Because it might have implications for you, or your life, or your time. Another form of spiritual blindness is distorting the truth. It's changing, it's manipulating what God has revealed to suit your agenda, or suit a political agenda or to fit in with somebody, or whatever. Changing or manipulating what God has said, taking his stuff and saying, what did God really say? Twisting it into something else. Or a fifth one I thought of was just simple idolatry. I suppose that could be connected to the last one, but it's just the idea that, no, I'm wholeheartedly going to pursue something other than Jesus. I just don't want him. This thing will be my key to spiritual insight. This thing will be the key to the meaning of life. This thing will be how I'll find my internal significance and sense of contentment. This thing will be what I turn to when times get really tough. It could be a whole number of things. But nonetheless, it's an idol, whatever it is. So we read this passage, and we get this reminder that like the disciples, like the disciples, we are all probably spiritually blind somewhere. We're all probably spiritually blind somewhere. And the answer to this, same answer every week, I guess, is to trust that his grace is sufficient to forgive us and overcome it. If there's some way, maybe there's some particular way, even right now you're thinking, the Lord's bringing to mind, like, oh man, I know that I have, I have turned from his truth. I've, I, this is a form of blindness that I'm dealing with right now. And maybe your first impulse is to feel guilt over that. And that's fine. As long as you know that there is no guilt that you possess that the cross has not already covered. You just take that. As soon as you're aware of that guilt, you take it to him in prayer. You confess it to him. Say, Lord, I forgive you. You know what? He is there with open arms every single time. We trust his grace is sufficient to forgive us and it's sufficient to overcome whatever our blindness is. Whether we're aware of it, whether we're not, usually the case is we're not aware of these things until he really stirs, stirs up an awareness within us, but we trust that he can overcome it. Any deficiency in our understanding or whatever else, he can. So there is no program, and we'll discover as we begin this journey on the second half of the book of Mark, where there's no program where Jesus is you know, asking, hey, okay, disciples need to go and you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and then you know, your issue of spiritual blindness will be dealt with. It's just to keep coming back to Jesus. And his open, gracious, loving arms saying yes. 
he'll receive me and he'll work with me. You know what? Every time the disciples in Mark do something stupid, he doesn't cast them out. He doesn't abandon them. In fact, I think we've said this in the last week or two. He never abandons them. They're all the ones that abandon him. The Garden of Gethsemane comes. Jesus is faithful to them. And even just asking them to come and pray with him. They're the ones who run. He never does. He never does. He never leaves them. He keeps extending grace. So the, the challenge of this text is both to, to ask God to, to reveal to us where are we blind? Let's not presume that we're any better than the 12 closest disciples who walked with Jesus in the flesh for three years straight were basically in an itinerant ministry school with him. Let's not assume we're better. Let's not assume we're better. But instead, let's seek him. Let's abide in him. Let's pursue him in community together in his word, the revealed word of God in the scriptures. Let's do it in prayer. Let's do it believing and intentionally asking him to reveal his glorious light and truth to open up our eyes. Amen? Well, I say we pray and ask him to do that right now. Bow your heads.